So this morning, I want to bring you a, a message about the Bible. There's a lot of competing voices about the Bible today. And I'm not even talking about unbelievers, the voices of unbelievers who totally disparage the Word of God. I'm not talking about critical scholars who would not even claim to follow Christ. I'm talking about those who who claim the name of Christ and yet disparage the Word of God, some intentionally and some unintentionally. Some want to cut out the Word of God. They want to take portions of it and, and cut it up, like the great heretic uh, Marcion, who, who wanted to cut out portions of the Old Testament. That's what Andy Stanley is doing today. He's taking up and dividing the Word of God, and he's saying it's foolishness. The Old Testament is foolishness. Don't believe it. And, and he just continues to batter the Word of God. I doubt many of you actually listen to Andy Stanley, but he is a voice in the evangelical community nationwide, a very large church, thousands that follow him. But he, um, he is just one of the many today who are trying to cut out the Word of God. They're saying this portion of the Word of God is really, it's foolishness. Don't listen to it. And he claims to be a Christian. He claims to be a pastor. He's a false teacher, actually. But then you have people who want to, they don't really want to cut the Word of God, they want to modify the Word of God. You have voices within our within Christianity today who say that women should be pastors, that women should be preachers. And that's just one of the many topics. But but they, they want to take a portion of Scripture that's actually very clear that God gave us, and they want to muddy it, and they want to say that, that God didn't actually say what what He said. So they want to modify the Word of God. And then you have some people who want to add to the Word of God. So they want to take, they, they want to, to take, and they don't see the Word of God as sufficient, so they, they add something to it. And well-meaning evangelicals do this. And they do this by adding experiences. They say, now the Word of God is good, but, but you need an experience. Whether that experience is is like speaking in tongues, or whether that experience is the presence of God, experience the presence of God. I don't even know what that means. I know what the presence of God means. He shows up, you know that he's there, and you'll bow down, you'll fall down and worship him. But but this feeling of the presence of God is is something nebulous, it's emotional. They, they say you need this to walk with Christ. And and then there are those who who encourage like trips to Israel. Now, I'm all for going to Israel when you can do that. It's a wonderful historical trip. But but there, the, those that go sometimes act like having gone there, that their faith is now more genuine, that they can really believe the Bible now that they've gone to Israel. Okay? So I watched a, a little documentary recently on this where uh, you know a, a Hollywood star took a trip to Israel and baptized his children and his wife and others were getting baptized in the Jordan. Not because they had recently come to faith, but because it was an experience. And then they talked about how how wonderful that was and what how, how they could believe the word of God all that much more. And they were feeling something work within them as they as they walked on the Temple Mount. Well, again, I understand that it is emotionally moving to walk where Jesus walked. There's no doubt about that. But it. It speaks to their low view of the word of God. If you have to make a trip to Israel to actually think that this is true. And so accidentally and they're well meaning, but accidentally they, they are adding to the word of God. They, they're saying you have to have the word of God plus something else. So you have all these competing voices within evangelical Christianity today. Well, what's what's right? Well, this morning, I want you to, to hear from Scripture what Scripture says about Scripture. In essence, what God says about his word. This morning, we're going to look at eight faith strengthening characteristics of the Bible that will help you to trust the Scriptures as the word of God. So eight faith strengthening characteristics. Right. The first one of these is the inspiration of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. What is the inspiration of Scripture? The inspiration of Scripture is a, is a theological term that, that essentially means that God breathed out the Word of God, that the Scriptures originate with Him. It means that, the, that whatever God wanted to be written in the Bible was actually written. 
And we see support for this doctrine in 2 Timothy 3.16. We'll be in multiple scriptures today. Um, and you can start the, by turning to 2 Timothy. Some scriptures I'll just read to you to keep the message from going into too long. Uh, others I'll have you turn because I want you to see them. I want you to see this. So go to 2 Timothy 3.16. You, you might have memorized this, this passage. It's an important passage regarding the inspiration of scripture. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice that the first phrase in that in verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. Uh, God-breathed the scriptures. If if you uh, have a NASB 95, it, it, it puts the translation this way. All scripture is inspired. The ESV translate this, translate this as all scripture is breathed out by God. The New King James Version words that says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So that's where we get the word inspiration. Um, the Greek word that is used there in 2 Timothy 3.16 is, is only used in that one passage in the New Testament. It's a composite adjective created from the word for God and the word breathe. It means God breathed, literally God breathed out his word. Uh, most translations uh, or many translations use the word inspire, inspiration there, which comes from the Latin Vulgate. It's from the Latin word inspirata, uh, which which um, we get the word inspiration. Now, the problem with the word inspiration is that we often Think of that like like we use the term today. We we think about uh, inspiration, in the sense of of having a, a flash of genius when a when an artist who's composing a music does like a really nice piece of music. We say, oh, he, he was inspired or he might speak. He or she might speak of themselves as being inspired when they wrote that. Uh, they don't by they don't mean by that, that that God gave them that. They just meant that that there's some flash of genius, that everything came together at the moment to, to have a great idea. Uh, sometimes authors do that in writing, writing books. But we can also speak about the word inspiration from the sense of motivation. So you see somebody uh, do something that then inspires you to do something just like that. Like, for example, in um, the, the recent movie that came out, The, the Sound of Freedom, right? The, the man who went and rescued the children was inspired to do that because of a colleague's co-worker's question that asked him, like, well, you caught you caught the perverts, but did you ever rescue the children? And he was inspired to go rescue children because of that question. But that's not how the Bible uses the word inspired. The, the word inspired literally means God breathed, which is why the Legacy Standard Bible chose to translate it that way and and you have that way in the ESV as well. It's God breathed down. It comes from him. And you want to connect the imagery of that with how God spoke the world into creation in Genesis. So there is a connection. God breathed his creation. God breathed down his word. Um, now, the, the term God breathed means that God gave us his scriptures. Now, how did he do this? Did he dictate the word of God to those that, that wrote it down? Well, in some cases, yes, he did. Uh, for example, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, we, we, we're told to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, this is, the, this is what the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands says, and then quote, I know your deeds. So Jesus gave John the apostle a message to pass on to the church and John wrote it down and gave it to them. So that's a, a direct quotation. And the, each of the seven churches gets a message. So just from that, those sections alone, we see that some portions of scripture are dictated by God himself. And the author writes it down and then delivers the message. But the sections of those types of passages are relatively few. You could also go to the Old Testament, and look at all the passages that say, thus saith the Lord, and then and then quotation. So there's there's portions of scripture that do quote to God. 
But again, there's much of scripture that is not a quotation of God. How did God work that out? Well, the, the doctrine of inspiration means that God moved the men who wrote to write exactly what he wanted them to write. And that, we call that superintending. God superintended the writing of scripture so that what the men wrote are actually is actually his words. And the apostle the Apostle Peter describes this superintending process for us. So you could turn in your Bibles to Second Peter, Second uh, Peter chapter chapter one, and look at verses twenty and twenty-one. Second Peter one. There, Peter says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. That is, it's, it's not, it's not, Scripture saying it doesn't come of, of, of a man's own initiative. He did not initiate it. He says, for no prophecy was ever made by the, by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So this is talking about speaking, preaching, but this is ultimately talking about Scripture because this is what we have to pay attention to. Look at verse 19. And we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. So he's talking about Scripture. And what the Apostle Peter is telling us is that God moved men to write what he wanted them to write. In this moving process, though the word that is used, it's like wind filling the sail of a, of a sailing vessel and moving that vessel across the waters. That's, that's the imagery that we need to understand. God is commanding that ship. He's commanding the, the authors to write what they write without overriding their own personalities, their own peculiarities. We can look at certain authors and the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and there's a certain vocabulary that they that they use. So scholars have have noticed this. So God didn't override the the general personalities of the authors of Scripture. And and yet what he has given us is the very word of God, even though given out by by men, written down by men. Uh, Biblical doctrine uh, this is the systematic theology written by uh, Dr. MacArthur and Dr. Mayhew. They, they describe inspiration this way. I'll just quote this. God, through his spirit, inspired every word penned by the human authors in each of the 66 books of the Bible in the original documents. That is the autographs. Inspiration describes the process of divine causation behind the authorship of Scripture. It refers to the direct act of God on the human author that resulted in the creation of perfectly written revelation. It conveys the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he used the individual personality, language, style, and historical context of each writer to produce divinely authoritative writings. These works were truly the product of both human author and the Holy Spirit. And what is most important here is to recognize that the biblical claim of inspiration is one of divine superintendence. God produced the scriptures by influencing the human author's own thoughts. This resulted in divinely authoritative and inerrant words written in the autographs. So all scripture is given this way. It is given by God. And if all scripture is, is God-breathed, then you must receive it as God's message to you. It's not just some book written to the church in general it's written to believers like you and like me we we are to listen to the word of god and and observe it right the the holy spirit gave us the scriptures for our edification it's it's not just another book it's not just an ancient book it is an old book but it is God's word given to us. It, it is, it is the God's word given by His Holy Spirit for enlightenment, for us to understand and to strengthen, um, strengthen us in applying what we know of God's word. 
So if the scriptures are, are God-breathed, then it stands to reason that they are inerrant. And inerrancy is the, is the second faith-strengthening characteristic of the Bible that we need to really really receive it, um, receive the Bible as authoritative and as the word of God, the, the inerrancy of Scripture. So we move from the inspiration of Scripture to the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, the inerrancy of Scripture means that the Scriptures are without error in the original manuscripts that we call the autographa, the originals that the authors wrote. The, the Holy Spirit superintended the writing process. And we know from many of the the manuscripts that we have that today that that the copies of the scriptures that we have in our hands, the translations we have match very accurately with the original autographa, with the original manuscripts, which we no longer have. But what all that to say is that the, the copy of the word of God you have in your hands or on your phone is is has a deferred inerrancy. You could find typographical mistakes and things like this. But there is there's no essential doctrine of the Christian faith that is in question. You can look and read the word of God in your own language and know what God actually has said. It's not been contaminated, so contaminated by man that that we can't really tell what's of man and what's of God. No, it's God has preserved his word which is a whole other sermon in itself, but, but God has preserved his word so that the Bibles you hold in, in your hand today is the very word of God. Now, sinners will often revolt against scripture, scriptures because they believe that, that, that they see the, the fallibility of the men who wrote them and they know these men were sinners and they know that things can get contaminated through, through the years. Yet we must understand that the inspiration of Scripture guarantees the inerrancy of Scripture. If the Scriptures are inspired, they are inerrant. If they weren't inspired, then they'd be full of errors. It just stands to reason. Now, the inerrancy of Scripture is is guaranteed on, on yet another level. Think about this. God cannot lie. We know that from Titus 1, 2. God cannot lie. You know, sometimes theologians debate, is there something God can't do? Is he really all that power? Yes, there are things that God cannot do. He cannot violate his own character. God cannot lie. Scriptures tell us that clearly. So it stands to reason that if God cannot lie and God gave us the scriptures, then what's given in the scriptures, it's not a lie. It's all true. And additionally, Scriptures like Psalm 139 verses 1 to 5 tell us that God knows all things. God's omniscient. God has perfect knowledge of himself and he has perfect knowledge of his creation. He knows the beginning and he knows the end. He knows it all. There's nothing for God to learn. So therefore, it's not as if God can make a mistake in writing the word of God. Because some people would say that. Well, God, God's not a liar, but he might make a mistake. No, God won't make a mistake. Because he has perfect knowledge of everything. Thus the scriptures are again guaranteed to be without error. Both from the standpoint of inerrancy. That, that they're actually given by God without error. But also from the standpoint of God's character. That he will not lie. Also from his character that he knows all things. So thus the scriptures are inerrant. Without error. The scriptures are repeatedly called the word of truth. Let me just read some of these to you. Psalm 119, verse 43. And do not take away the word of truth utterly from my mouth, for I wait for your judgments. Or Psalm 119, verse 60. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments is everlasting. Or John 17, 17. Jesus, in his prayer, high priestly prayer to the Father, he says he prayed, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. Or 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Or even from James 1.18 which says that in the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So uh, repeatedly the scriptures are called the word of truth. Right? That is what the word of God is called many times. But then there are other scriptures like, for example, Psalm 12, verse 
verse 6, which says, The words of Yahweh are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace in the ground, refined seven times. So it, the scriptures, the psalmist, is telling us that, that the word of God is so pure, it's like silver that's been refined seven times over. Right? There's no contamination in it. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 9. Just I'll just read the first parts of those verses. The, the law of Yahweh is perfect. The testimony of Yahweh is sure. The precepts of Yahweh are right. The commandment of Yahweh is pure. The fear of Yahweh is clean. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. So taking all these verses together, know that the, the Lord's word is inerrant. And thus you are to accept the truth of the scriptures as inerrant, without error. And this includes matters of history and science. Whatever the scriptures address, it's true. It's accurate. Now, I will say that the scriptures do not conform to our modern desire for scientific precision. So sometimes we expect the scriptures to speak with the precision that, that we demand of the scriptures. Now, that's not what they do. God has given us an accurate word, but it, but it is not to precise as we want it to be in some areas. Right? To give you an example, in 1 Kings 7.23, this is talking about when Solomon was building the temple of God and making all the instruments for the temple. He says this, and he made the sea, that's, that's a big bowl, he made the sea of cast metal ten cubits from brim to brim. So this is a circular item. Ten cubits, right, brim to brim. Right, that's, that's getting you the, the diameter. Circular in form, and its height was five cubits, that's its depth, and thirty cubits in its circumference. Now, for those of you who like math and geometry, figure that out. Right, So you have a diameter, you have a circumference. The diameter is 10, the circumference is 30. If you do the math, that, that equates to pi equals 3. Which I had uh, an agnostic uncle, I still have an agnostic uncle, who, who says that that's an error. That shows there's an error in the Word of God. That's not an error of the Word of God. That is a precision. Right? It is accurate to say that pi equals 3. Now, it's not as precise as saying pi equals 3.1 and on, 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 it goes, right? So, that's what we're talking about. It's actually impossible to build a bowl without having the pi to be accurate. And, and that's my uncle's point, was that the Word of God wasn't accurate. But, but the Word of God is accurate. Pi is 3. It's, it's just more, a little more than that, but rounded off, it's, it's 3. So, the Scriptures don't speak with modern precision that we want, but whatever they say, they say with accuracy. And you could take this to even the books, of, the book of Genesis or the book of Revelation. Whatever is said is said is accurate. Okay? We don't have to explain it away. We don't have to go look to science to help us understand what is being said. So the inerrancy of scriptures is, is critically important to, to your walk of faith. If you were to fall into the air of, of thinking that the scriptures contained errors, how would you then discern what's actually true or not? I had a roommate in college who rejected part of the scriptures. And I just said, by what standard are you making that decision? Then it becomes very subjective. It's like you deciding what scriptures are valid and which ones are not. And then it's man, it's men and women putting themselves in authority over the word of God deciding that what 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 uh, the scriptures are valid and which ones aren't but well, that's not right right we are to be in submission to the word of god we are not to be in positions of of authority over the word of god so beloved you and i must accept what the scriptures tell us as truth you may not like what it says there are times when it steps on your toes or confronts your worldview uh, and you just don't like what it says, that's a different thing. But know, know that what it says, it says accurately. That's what God's word says. We need to seek to understand it rightly and apply it right? and conform our will to his and ask him for help 
to accept the things that we don't like, but but know that what is written is written uh, without error. So let's move to the third faith strengthening characteristic of the Bible that will help you trust the scriptures as the word of God. And this is the infallibility of scripture, the infallibility of scripture. There are people today who reject the inspiration of scripture. Well, they don't reject the inspiration, but they would reject the the inerrancy of scripture and then land on the infallibility of scripture. Those two are often linked, inerrancy and infallibility. But what I mean by infallibility is that the scriptures are incapable of failing. Incapable of failing. So we believe that they're inerrant, but we also believe the scriptures are infallible. They actually will accomplish everything that God gave them to accomplish. Every purpose. We see this from Jesus' own lips. In John 10.35, Jesus says that the scriptures cannot be broken. Every promise is true and, and either has come to pass or will come to pass. Scripture can't be broken. They will be fulfilled. They are incapable of failing. Uh, Jesus said in, in Matthew 5.18, he says, For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The, the, the word will be fulfilled. Now listen to Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word goes out. He sends it out verbally and also in written form. And it will accomplish the purpose, the purposes for which he has sent it. So let the infallibility of scripture build your confidence and strengthen you. God's word is able to do his work in your life that he gave it to do. So when you when you read something challenging or difficult to understand and are tempted, tempted to doubt the word of God, Train yourself not to doubt the word of God. Doubt your understanding of the passage or doubt your understanding of the historical situation that you need to understand to rightly interpret that passage. Don't doubt scripture itself. Right? Because what happens is when we encounter some difficulty, something we don't like, something we don't understand, some difficult portion of scripture, we, we are our default setting as former sinners is to distrust the word of God, to cast doubt on the word of God. That's what Eve did. That's what Satan encouraged us to do. And it's kind of inherent in our makeup until the Lord perfects us. So we want to train ourselves not to doubt the word of God, to trust the word of God. We know the scriptures are God breathed and inerrant and infallible because the word of God tells us that. Right? Building on that and with all these together, we come to the authority of scripture. The fourth strength, faith strengthening characteristic of the Bible that we want to look at is the authority of Scripture. I mean, if the Scriptures are God-breathed, if they're inerrant, if they're infallible, then it stands to reason that they are authoritative. Since God is a creator and ruler of all, and since he knows all things, whatever he says, he says with authority. It's accurate and it's authoritative. Now, authority is not a difficult concept for us to understand. We're bored under authority. You had parents who were, who were your authority figure for many years of your lives. We live under the authority of local, state, and federal governments. Uh, we function as a church under the authority of biblically qualified elders. So authority is not something that's difficult for us to understand. We just don't like it. Uh, we... we we like authority as long as we agree with the authority. And as soon as we don't agree with the authority, then we don't like the authority. But what we need to understand is that, is that God's word is authoritative whether you like it or not. And you are under its authority whether you like it or not. Even the unbeliever is under the authority of God's word. God's word rules over all. So whatever the scriptures say, they speak with authority to you. I mean, God is compassionate. And so he sends his prophets and apostles to plead with sinners to, to turn from their wicked ways, to believe in Jesus Christ, to have faith. He pleads with his people to obey. But in the end, he could simply just command. The word of God commands us to obey the Lord. 
And so when we hear the word of God accurately taught, when we read the word of God from an accurate translation, you need to hear that not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God. And there's a beautiful illustration of this in 1 Thessalonians. You can turn there. 1 Thessalonians. The church at Thessalonica was was a a church, one of those churches. It's almost a, serves as a model church for us uh, even today. It's one of those churches Paul didn't offer a rebuke. He offered uh, instruction to them, but he didn't rebuke them for errant ways. But but listen to what Paul tells us, or how Paul describes how the Thessalonians received the word of God. Now, of course, not all received the word of God this way. There was quite an uproar in Thessalonica um, from some uh, false teachers, but there were those who received the word of God. Now look at chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, particularly looking at verse 13, but I'll just read from verse, beginning at verse 10 to give us some context. Uh, sorry, verse, verse, yeah, I'm in the wrong... In Second Thessalonians, and First Thessalonians, there we go. From verse ten, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, how devoutly and righteously and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and bearing witness to each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. Right? Just think about that. So they didn't have like written scriptures that that they could see. The scriptures were what Paul spoke, but because of the way Paul spoke, he spoke what was accurate, they, they they could check that out. Obviously, those who were Jews could could go to the synagogue if there were a copy of the Old Testament scriptures there, what we call Old Testament scriptures. They could check that out. But they received the preaching of the word of God, not as Paul's speech, but for what it really was, the word of God. And they believed and were saved. And that, that gives us a nice picture of how we are to receive the Bible. When you read the Bible, don't read it as as a translation of man, as a letter from man, although it is that, it is not merely that, it's ultimately the word of God. And, and so you need to receive it as, as if God were standing right before you telling you the, those very things. Um, th- this, is, um, this is why Paul commands preachers, and Titus in particular, but as a model for all preachers, to preach the word of God with all authority. Listen to Titus 2 Verses 11 to 15, Titus 2, verses 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good works. Now listen to this. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now you could, you could stand back and say, well, who does Paul think he is? Or who does Titus think he is when Titus was actually teaching this on the island of Crete? Well, it's not about Paul. It's not about Titus. This is about the word of God. So the reason that, that Paul told uh, Titus to to teach this with all authority and let no one disregard you is because he was teaching God's word, which is authoritative over all. There's no higher authority on earth than the word of God because it's it's God's word. Now the the outworking of God's authority in Scripture can be can be summarized by a series of negative and positive statements. And here again, I'm helped by the. Systematic theology, biblical doctrine. So I'll just quote this. And I think these are helpful. These statements are helpful. This, this is speaking about the authority of God. The, the, the authority of God is, the authority of the Word of God is, is not derived authority bestowed by humans, 
Rather, it is the original authority of God. The, the authority of scriptures does not change with the times, the culture, the nation, or the ethnic background. Rather, it is unalterable. It is the unalterable authority of God. Thirdly, the, the authority of the Bible is not one authority among many possible spiritual authorities. Rather, it is the exclusive spiritual authority of God. Fourthly, the authority of the Bible is not an authority that can be successfully challenged or rightfully overthrown. Rather, it is the permanent authority of God. Fifthly, the authority of the Bible is not a relativistic or subordinate authority. It's not, that is, it's not relative to the times. Uh, rather, it is the ultimate authority of God. Sixth, the authority of the Bible is not merely a suggestive authority. Rather, it is the obligatory authority of God. That is, that God commands and you're obligated to obey it. And seventh and last, the authority of the Bible is not a benign authority in its outcome. Rather, it is the consequential authority of God. In other words, God speaks with authority and it produces the the result that he wants. It, he carries authority, not just a, a legal for authority, but authority to, to produce what he wants to produce in our lives. So how do we how do we grow in submission to the word of God? If God's word is authoritative. How do we grow and stimulate submission to the word of God? Well, you, you do that in part by going back to the first kind of characteristics that we talked about. The word of God is inspired. The word of God is inerrant. The word of God is infallible. And in coming to it, that means it's authoritative. So you're going back and you're reminding yourselves of these things and bringing yourself under the authority of the word of God. Not because you have to, but because you want to honor the Lord, your God, who is your savior. Now, there could be some here today that just kind of are have already tuned me out, perhaps. So if you have, tune back in. Um, there are those who reject the scriptures or just don't really care about the scriptures. And, and to you, I just plead with you to, to repent and believe the scriptures. This is the very word of God. This isn't, this isn't just an ancient book. It is the living and active word of God who speaks to you today. And you will be held accountable for having God's word in your own language. Don't ignore it. Submit to the word of God today. And, and you can kind of know in your life whether you've submitted the word of God or not by whether you're actually reading the word of God. Is the word of God just something you have and it's on a shelf or it's an app on your phone that you haven't opened in the last 30 days? Read it. It's God's word to you and submit to it. Well, let's move from the authority of the Word of God to something very important. That's the clarity of the Word of God. So the fifth faith strengthening characteristic of the Bible that helps you trust the Scriptures of the Word of God is the clarity of Scripture. Uh, some theologians call this the perspicuity of Scripture, which is a really strange term because it's not very clear to us what that means anymore. Hence, I'm using the term Clarity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture means that the Bible accurately reveals and clearly communicates the message that God intended to communicate. It, it means that there's no esoteric or hidden message. You don't have to have a special initiation in order to understand this message. We'll talk about a caveat to that. But what I'm saying is there's, there's no there's nothing here that's kind of hidden. The, the authors wrote what they wrote under the inspiration of Scripture. It's detailed. It's accurate. There are many wonderful details to be studied as you study it carefully. But it's not a hidden message. So sometimes you hear about the study of numerology and there's hidden numbers and especially those who are into prophecy. And they, if you align this chapter with this verse and it comes down as a cross and uh, I'm, I'm being facetious here because they have to do all sorts of stuff and you know what it depends upon? It depends upon the creativity of the interpreter. The average person couldn't sit down and get any of that from the Bible. It's all dependent upon the creativity of the particular person who is teaching that. And if you ever hear that, that's not the word of God. 
That is that person's creativity coming up with something. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's not. No one knows except the person who's saying it. And that's what, often why they say it is to kind of put themselves in the limelight. The, the scriptures are given to communicate God's word to us. The scriptures aren't given to frustrate us. Um, Psalm 36, 9 says, for with you, the psalmist says, speaking to God, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. So God's word is pictured as light. And, and in that light, we see the light. We, we come to know what truth is in the scriptures. First um, Peter 2 tells us this. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and envy and slander like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow to, in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. What, what is Peter saying? He's saying long for the pure milk of the word like babies. So what is that telling you? That's telling you that you, as a, even a baby, new baby Christian, can go to the Word of God and can read it and get nourishment and sustenance from it. And that speaks to the clarity of Scripture. Uh, we're, we're given another window into the clarity of Scripture from, from P, uh, sorry, uh, Timothy's life, as Paul writes to him, 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 14 and 15, he, he says, Paul says to Timothy, but you continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them. And listen, that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise into salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. What is that telling us? Timothy knew the scriptures from childhood. So, children can understand the scriptures. Now, there's some things they're going to have difficulties with. They're going to need some help. But there's an affirmation that, that children can understand the scriptures. Again, speaks to the clarity of scripture. You don't have to be a senior cleric. You don't actually have to go study Greek and Hebrew, although that helps. You can just study your Bible that's written in your language. And you can understand it. Now that this does the clarity of scripture doesn't mean that that every portion of the Bible is easy to understand, right? Notice that the doctrine isn't the easiness of scripture. The doctrine is the clarity of scripture. The clarity of scripture means that the that the message the author intended is there. You just have to read it. And sometimes it takes careful study in order to dig it out. And that that's why um, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2:15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So to accurately understand the word of God, you've got to dig in. You've got to be a diligent workman. You've got to study. And that's that's my job. And But it's also your job as a believer to make sure you accurately understand the word of God. And that's that's half the problem with pastors today who are speaking errant things is they just haven't taken enough time to actually know what the word of God says. So it kind of tells you what they think of the Word of God. Right? They don't think of the Word of God as inspired. They don't think of it as inerrant. They don't think of it as infallible. And they don't think of it as authoritative. Now, So, so the clarity of Scripture doesn't eliminate the need to study. And, and the clarity of Scripture does not eliminate the need for what we call illumination. You do need illumination from the Holy Spirit. If you are unconverted... You can read the text, and to a certain degree, you will understand some of what it says. But you will not understand its full meaning, nor will you be able to apply it to your life without the Holy Spirit. We're told this by the Apostle Paul. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'll begin reading in verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. For who among men knows the depths of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the depths of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually examined. 
But he who is spiritual examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we will direct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the scriptures just say we need the spirit to help us understand the scriptures. You you can have scholars who understand Greek and Hebrew and to a certain extent they can translate. They can even memorize. I've heard of Hebrew scholars, Jewish scholars memorizing large portions or even the entire what we call the Old Testament, the First Testament. But but it doesn't penetrate into their heart at all. It does them no good. They ultimately miss the message because they don't have the Spirit of God within them. So you need to be reborn. You need to be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit in order to understand the Scriptures. I I can speak firsthand of this. I was raised by parents who taught me the Word of God, brought me to church. And I can remember, even in college, going to Bible studies because I knew that's what Christians should do. But coming away from the Bible studies, like, agitated and frustrated inside and I never knew really why until later after God saved me and then it began to make sense I was frustrated because I could read some things but I couldn't really understand it because I didn't have the Holy Spirit within me helping me to understand and helping me to apply these things and helping me to submit to them at at the same time and obey them so the, the scriptures are given to instruct us not confuse us think about the scriptures this way. God wrote them to communicate a clear message. It's not always easy to understand. Even, you know, Peter says that the Apostle Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. That doesn't mean impossible. It doesn't mean it's a hidden message. just means you're going to have to study. Right? So, for example, like eschatology. Eschatology, I think, is one of those things that's hard to understand because there's so many pieces to it. So many of the Old Testament prophets speak about it. There's many passages in the New Testament. Jesus speaks about it. We have a whole book about the future, right? But and it's not, but it's not given out necessarily to give with all the details. So pulling all that together, see, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. God's word is clear, and that should build our confidence in the word of God. There is no essential doctrine of the Christian faith that's that's in question at all. From the scriptural standpoint, people today are are um, challenging it because they don't like some of those. But the clarity of Scripture means that the, the, the Word of God is clear. It's given to us. We know we can know what it says by careful uh, interpretation of it and with the help of the Holy Spirit. So moving from, from the clarity of Scripture, the sixth faith-generating or faith-strengthening faith characteristic of the Bible is the sufficiency of the Word of God, the sufficiency of Scriptures. Now, the word sufficient means enough to get the job done. So if you're building a home, if you're building a house, you would gather the supplies you need to, to, to build that house. So if you told me, yeah, I have a sufficient supplies to build a house, then you could build a house and you wouldn't need anything else. So that's essentially what the scriptures are saying. The scriptures are sufficient. God has breathed out his inerrant, infallible, authoritative word, that his clear word to give us understanding So that he could bring us to faith, give us knowledge of God, of ourselves, of sin, of the penalty of of sin, of the Savior, of salvation, of sanctification, and all that he's doing in building the church and of the future. The scriptures are sufficient for everything. Uh, God has given his, his word in these 66 books and no more. It's sufficient. There's times in our lives where, yeah, we want, we would like to have more information. You would like to have a, a, a message, a, a letter just to you and telling you which job to take or who to marry or, you know, just all the decisions in life. So we, there's times where we want more information, but we don't need more information. God has given us everything that we need. Listen to Second Peter, uh, verses one, uh, sorry, chapter one, verses two and four, where Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises 
so that by them you, be, be, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Listen to that. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. There's, there's nothing lacking. If you have the Holy Spirit by, by faith in Christ, and, and you have the, the Bible, then you have everything that you need. You don't need something more. God doesn't need to give you a, a new word. The Bible is sufficient to bring you to Christ and to equip you to do everything that God wants you to do. Listen to 2 Timothy 3.16 from a different perspective. We looked at it once before. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. But then listen how it continues. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good work. Everything that God wants you to do is, is, is given to you in the scriptures. It, the, the, the principles are there. The commands are there. The prohibitions are there. You don't need something further. And then listen to Jesus' words in John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Okay? Not your word and these, they need these other things too. He just says your word is truth. Your sanctification. All you need is the Bible. Okay? You don't need some, a different message or an additional message. So the sufficiency of Scripture means that you don't need any other instruction or any other information in order to have a healthy walk with God. You don't need psychology. And if you study the lives of the psychologists who pioneered that field, you'll see, you'll see they were detestable men who hated God. Why do we want to adopt their principles? So where they make accurate observations of human behavior, fine. That's human behavior. But, but often they speak about spiritual matters, and when they speak about spiritual matters, they're just wrong. They contradict the Word of God. So we don't need, we don't need that. It's, it's actually uh, a contamination of truth to try to integrate psychology with the Scriptures. We also don't need anything that man can come think of, like critical race theory. We don't need it. Right? The Bible already addresses everything we need to have to have peace with God and peace with one another. And to treat each other with kindness, with love and compassion. It's all in the scriptures. We have everything we need. Don't need something more. We don't need woke agendas. The scriptures already tell us. Take care of one another. Love one another. Love your enemy. Love your neighbor as yourself. We have enough in the scriptures. It's sufficient. So trust the word of God. Trust the word of God to... To do the work that God gave it to do in your life. Uh, turn to Psalm 19 for a moment. Psalm 19 gives us a, a beautiful picture of what the Word of God accomplishes in our lives. Again, looking at really the, the sufficiency of the Word of God. In verse 7, I read to you the first part of these verses, but, but I want to read the result that it brings about to help you see this. The, the law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant, your slave is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The, the word of God does its work in our lives. Internally, changing us and transforming us. The Bible is sufficient. The seventh faith strengthening characteristic of the Bible that, that will help you trust the scriptures as God's given word is the immutability of scripture, the immutability of scripture. And, and this, the immutability of scripture flows from the immutability of God. The word immutable means unchangeable. As God is unchanging, so the word of God is unchanging. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 7 to 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of Yahweh blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, 
but the word of our God stands forever. It stands forever. Or Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 10. Remember this and be assured. Cause it to return to your heart, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not yet been, saying my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Nothing's going to change with God's word. He's going to bring it to pass. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, Yahweh, your word stands firm in heaven. Forever your word stands firm. It doesn't pass away. And Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 1 verse 25. He says, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So man's laws are constantly changing. If we wrote the scriptures, then they'd have to be updated. Like laws have to be updated today. But God is the one who authored the scripture. He inspired them. They're inerrant. They're infallible. They are authoritative. They're clear. And they, they accomplish what God, they're unchanging. They're immutable. They're going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish through them. So just because the scriptures are old, don't write them off. It's an old message, but it's an immutable message. It's an unchanging message. And we refer to the Old Testament and the New Testament. But keep in mind, they're both really old, right? It's kind of funny how we call the New Testament new because it's not really new. It's thousands of years old. But keep in mind, it, it's an ancient message, but it's given by the living God and they are, it's an immutable message, an unchanging message. So you'll never be on the wrong side of history if you're believing the scriptures because God is the judge of history, not man. And eighth, I want to bring to you the, the invincibility of Scripture. So the invincibility of Scripture is the eighth characteristic of Scripture that will help you trust the Scriptures. I mean, think about the invincibility of Scriptures from this perspective. Invincibility, you know what that is. Like, that's the ultimate, ultimate power. No one can, can, can overcome the Scriptures. No one can defeat the Scriptures. The Word of God is living and active. And no creature is hidden from its sight. Turn to Hebrews 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of whom we, with, to whom we have to give an account. And then there's kind of a, a blending of the written Word of God and the living Word of God. The Word of God is living and active and is able to get inside your life and, and divide what can't be divided in order to convict you of sin and to bring about the result that He wants to bring about. Right? No one can avoid this. Right? That's why we call it the invincibility of Scripture. Um, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 23, 29 uh, gives us pictures, word pictures of, of the invincibility of the word of God. Here, um, God says to Jeremiah, he says, is not my word like fire, declares Yahweh. You know that consuming fire that comes from heaven that even can consume rocks? You know, there's several times where in a sacrifice, even some of the rocks were consumed. Right? Is not my word like fire? And he says, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. Right? So God thought about the Thor's hammer a long time before Thor did, didn't he? This is a much bigger hammer. Not a literal hammer. This is the hammer of God's word. No one ultimately will stand hardened against it. They will be shattered if they don't bow the knee to, to the Lord's authority. So trust that the scripture will be fulfilled. The word is reliable. Trust it and believe in it. So there are the eight faith-strengthening characteristics of the Bible. The scriptures are God-breathed. They're inerrant. 
They're infallible. They're authoritative. They're clear. They're sufficient. They're immutable and invincible. God will bring about what he brings about. Now, in in closing, I want to bring to you uh, symbols of what of how the word of God is described um, in the word of God and the reality that they that they um, identify with. So the scriptures are spoken of as the word and Jesus Christ is the living word. Remember in John 1, 1, the word of God came among us and dwelt, dwelt among us. We behold his glory. So Jesus Christ is the personification of the word. The word of God is also described as valuable metals. And and they're, what we're to take away from this is the fact that the scriptures are, are, inca- are of incalculable worth. They're compared uh, to silver in, in Psalm 12.6 and to gold in Psalm 19.10. The word of God is described as a seed as the source of new life that brings us new life. 1 Peter 1.23 The Word of God is described as water cleansing from sin. Ephesians 5.25-27 and also in, in Revelation 21 and, and 22. The Word of God is described as a mirror that's used for self-examination. In James chapter 1 verses 22-25 The Word of God is described as food, as nourishment for the soul. It's described as milk. It's described as bread. It's described as meat. It's described as honey. The Lord wants us to get the message. You need this this word for the nourishment of your soul. If you're struggling spiritually, ask yourself, how much are you actually in the word of God? How much of the word of God are you actually taking in and contemplating and allowing that to to instruct your life? The word of God is given to to feed you spiritually. The word of God is compared to clothing. Um, that is putting on the scriptures like a garment. Being dressed in the truth. From Titus 2.10. The word of God is comp- compared to a lamp. Providing light and direction in our life. Psalm 119 verses, verse 105. The word of God is compared to a sword. A spiritual weapon. There's the outward weapon of the word of God that's used and pictured in Ephesians 6. But there's also the inward sword that's spoken of that we've just read about in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. The word of God is compared to a plumb line. You know, a plumb line, you drop a plumb line, you know exactly what's true, what's right. That's the benchmark of spiritual reality. That's in Amos chapter 7 verse 8. The word of God is compared to a hammer. We just looked at from Jeremiah. 2329 that speaks of God's powerful judgment and word of God is compared to fire or described as fire which speaks of painful judgment now we also read that from Jeremiah 2329 and other places so these these pictures uh, of the word of God tell us that that describe a powerful word of God from a powerful God that we dare not ignore don't let anyone convince you to, to take away from the Word of God, to cut out a section of the Word of God. Don't let anybody convince you that you, that you need to, to modify the Word of God somehow, to do some hermeneutic, hermeneutical gymnastics to make it say what you want it to say. And, and don't let anybody convince you that you need some experience in order to really understand the Word of God and, and to walk with God. You, you don't. You just need the Word of God and the Spirit who comes to you by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ, that's all you need. And in the times that we live in, Bible-believing Christians are a minority. And I want to strengthen you to actually believe the Bible and to live by it and allow the Bible to direct how you live and allow the Scriptures to, to help you be steadfast and immovable when people come against you with with opposing ideas. Be winsome, but be immovable. Speak for Christ. Stay steadfast upon His Word. You will not live with any regrets if you do that. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are just thankful that You have given us Your Word to instruct us, to lead us, to guide us. Oh Lord, thank You for giving us Your Word you breathed out your word. You, you didn't leave us guessing. 
at, at how we could have our sins forgiven, you, you've told us. You've made it clear. Lord, thank you for just giving us your inerrant word, your infallible word, your, your, also, your authoritative word, your sufficient word, a word that's clear to us, a word that never changes. And Lord God, a, a word that, that just accomplishes its purpose, that, that, it, that it's just invincible. Lord God, help me to preach that word to your congregation and any pastor who stands in this pulpit and help your people here to receive your word this way, doing your work in their lives through your word. Lord, help us to be those who receive your word in this way and, and just are just elated and worship with you and, and worship you for what you have given us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.